Oh, what fun it is to be in the market right now. With the today, with the news of the Dow dropping about 600 points on the news of the jobs reports coming out and the unemployment rate, Wall Street didn't seem to like it currently right now. And it has to seem like no matter what news comes out, it just seems like Wall Street's not going to like it overall. Kind of disappointing too, if you think about it, because Wall Street probably doesn't like it when the when there's a decent job report coming out, because that means less money for them in Wall Street. But you know, they're going to do what they want to do because sometimes the market seems like it's not even real half of the time. But there is some news we got to be able to talk about today. Polestar confirms it will deliver up to 50,000 vehicles in 2022. That's more positive news from the car auto industry in the making, even though this car company is not within the United States. Okay. AMD shares are falling due to the fact uh that they reported numbers and they fall more than 7% on a weak outlook. And we'll talk a little bit more of that because the chip making industry is a huge topic to be talking about on this podcast currently right now. Samsung also, uh, their profits plunged in the first drop since 2019 as chip maker feels the bite. And that's another topic within the chip industry that we'll talk about. And finally, we'll end today's podcast by talking about the coal and oil industry and an opinion piece too about the oil industry, which I find most fascinating about currently right now. I kind of agree with the guy's observation of how what we should do for oil, but at the same time, there's some things I don't totally agree with him, and we'll talk about that later in today's podcast. With that being said, I have to remind you all that I'm not a professional advisor in any way, shape, or form. Everything I talk about on this podcast is for information purposes only. You need to do your own research before investing in any company as you're not guaranteed to make money in the stock market. You need to also talk to your financial advisor as they know your financial situation a lot better than I would, and they would also be able to help you actually do well with your money, hopefully. I cannot legally give you financial advice in any way, shape, or form. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only. And with that, let's begin today's podcast, okay? From CNBC, Swedish electric maker Polestar said Friday that it's still on track to deliver 50,000 vehicles in 2022 after its factory resumed full production following disruptions from COVID outbreaks in China. Polestar said it delivered 9,250 vehicles in the third quarter, bringing its total delivery so far this year to about 30,400 vehicles. That's roughly double its total from a year ago. But the fourth quarter will be critical for the company's goals. Polestar shares were up 3% in pre-market trading following the news. CEO Thomas Inginlath, I'm sorry for my Swedish listeners if I'm saying that wrong, said in a statement that he's confident Polestar will hit its target as it's already shipping many of the cars it expects to deliver by year end. Quote, we need to catch up on the production after COVID-19 related setbacks in China that we have. Polestar's corporate parent, Chinese automaker Geely, had to idle in Liquio factory for several weeks in the first half of 2022 because the government mandate COVID-19 lockdowns that factories made the Polestar 2 crossover as well as the models for other Geely brands. Polestar is a joint venture between Swedish Volvo cars and Geely, which has owned Volvo cars since 2010. It went public via a merger with a special purpose acquisition company in June. Polestar's next model, an SUV called Polestar 3, will be made in both... Uh, I don't even know how to say that. I think it's Lukeo and the U.S., where it was produced at a Volvo plant in South Carolina. The Polestar 3 is expected to make its formal debut in an event in Copenhagen next week, with production beginning soon thereafter. It's good to see that the car making industry is starting to make a turnaround, in all honesty. Because even right now, there's other news articles from CNBC, and we won't cover a whole lot about it. But from CNBC, they're also reporting today, too, that the new cars are finally being back in stock, but most Americans can't afford it, which is a very interesting take. 
Um, from Detroit, it says new cars are slowly becoming more widely available as supply chain bottlenecks finally start to ease, but now increasing number of Americans might not want them or be able to afford them. With the Federal Reserve aggressively hiking interest rates to fight inflation, consumers are finding that the cost of financing a new car is suddenly a lot higher than, it's ev- that, than it was even earlier this year. That's expected to cut demand and add new pressures to the auto industry, which has been struggling with the depleted inventories during the pandemic. The irony for the automakers is that just as the industry is posed to start seeing volumes increase from supply constraint recessions like low levels as uh, the rapidly movement in interest rates is reducing demand, Cox Automotive Chief Economicist Jonathan Smoke wrote in a blog post Wednesday. At the end of the third quarter, Cox Automotive found the, the new vehicle loan rate was 7%, up 2% points from the year. The loan rate in which used market was up the same amount to 11%, according to Cox Automotive. The higher costs for the car financing comes to the household budgets are already being squeezed by decades high inflation. That means many Americans may no longer to be able to afford the new cars that are starting to arrive on dealers' lots. And the cost of financing is expected to keep climbing. Already this year, the Fed has aggressively increased interest loans to 3% to 3.25%, and has indicated its plans to continue hiking rates until the Fed funds rate hikes 4.6% in 2023. You know, later in the article, it talks about how prices keep climbing up too. It says to make up for the lower sales, automakers have been focusing on producing more expensive vehicles, which are also their most pro- most profitable. That combined with rising interest rates is pushing more car shops to look at used vehicles. You know, we had spoken about this. Ford had raised its prices for its F-150 by within two months. I can't remember what exact number it was, how much they raised it by. We talked about it in yesterday's podcast. But car makers are starting to raise their prices for their cars because inflation is obviously increasing. And to get the parts is even harder, which means supply and demand for the parts is becoming difficult for them to make it. I mean, Ford even mentioned that they were struggling finding the, the hood ornament of their car to be able to make their parts. And obviously, there's a huge chip demand still, too. But at the end of the day, car makers, they're going to be focusing, it sounds like, a lot on the higher end deals so they can make more money, which means. Expect your car prices to go up. I mean, Polestar is probably going to have to do the same thing too. It's good to see that Polestar though, tying back to what the article we were talking about earlier, Polestar is doing well right now, but they're most likely going to have to raise their prices too across the board in order for them to make it and to continue to make money. So as long as inflation keeps on increasing, prices are going to keep going up across the board. Now onto the tech sector again about chips. AMD shares fall more than 7% on weak outlook. AMD shares were down more than 7% on Friday as investors digest the company's disappointing preliminary third quarter results Thursday that were well below the initial guidance. The chipmaker cut its sales forecast on Thursday for its third quarter, blaming a larger than expected decline in personal computer market and supply chain issues. AMD now expects preliminary quarter revenue of about $5.6 billion thanks to reduced uh, processor shipments. That's more than $1 billion below the $6.7 billion it had previously forecast at the midpoint of its revenue expectations for the quarter. The company also said its non-GAAP gross margins is expected to come in around 50%, while it had previously expected gross margins to be closer to 54%. Several firms, including Piper Sandler, Stifel, KeyBank Capital Markets, and Mishu Mijo Securities cut their price targets for AMD and notes of clients Friday, though each of them maintained a buy or overweight rating. Shares of other chipmakers like Intel and NVIDIA were also down more than 4% as weak PC demand supply chain issues could weigh on the semiconductor players. Oh boy, more chaos in the semiconductor space. I mean, 
there was some positive news earlier this week with the factories being built for both Micron and IBM on Thursday and Friday of this earlier this week. Now we're getting news that AMD is going to be struggling. I'm not surprised though that AMD is struggling. I mean, it has been hard for car makers to get the chips, which means chip makers are hard to find supplies too. I'm also surprised though that AMD isn't announcing. I mean, I think it would have been positive for them to have said this, that they should have said like, hey, like we're struggling with chips and making them, but we're going to build a plant in the United States. I think that would have caused the stock to have plummeted and then rebound. But they didn't make that announcement, obviously. And we got some more negative news from the entire chip maker in the making. Samsung's profit plunges and first drops since 2019 as chip makers feel the bite. Samsung said Friday it's operating pro- profit likely plunged 32% in the third quarter of the year as weaker memory pricing and demand hit the technology giant. The South Korean firm says it's expected operating profit to be between 10.7 trillion, 7.57 billion, and 10.9 trillion South Korean won in the first decline in operating profit since 2019. Samsung reported a revenue rise of between 75 trillion and 77 trillion Korean won at 1.3% to 4% year-on-year rise. Samsung's chip business, which includes selling chips for laptops, servers, and storage, as well as manufacturing semiconductors, amounts to 70% of its profits. The company sells NAND and DRAM chips, which are used in devices such as laptops and smartphones through to data centers. It also has a semiconductor manufacturing business. Samsung did not release any commentary alongside its third quarter forecast, but analysis said weakening of memory chip prices and demand was likely behind the profit fall. Dwight Capital Markets said, and I note on Friday that the DROM and NAND shipments declined by 15% and 10% quarter on quarter, while prices fell 19% and 20% respectively quarter on quarter, which led to a sharp decline in earnings. The predicted profit falls add further concerns about the chip sector, which is facing softer demand amid a weaker global microeconomic environment. Yeah, I don't believe they're facing a softer demand. That seems to like to be a lie from CNBC News currently right now. And the only reason I say that is because the automakers keep saying they're struggling with finding chips right now. Continuing on. Uh, Micron, a rival to Samsung, warned last month that consumer demand and inventory-related headwinds were impacting memory makers. Samsung's profits fall forecast sent shockwaves through other chip stocks. In Europe, companies such as Dutch equipment maker ASML and Apple supplier ST Micro were lower in morning trade. TSMC, the world's largest contract chip manufacturer, was down in Taiwan trade. However, after the market closed in Taiwan, the company reported a 42.6% year-on-year rise in revenue, bucking some of the bearishness among semiconductor firms. TSMC is perhaps the world's most important chip maker, manufacturing component for the world's second largest electronics maker, including Apple. Many companies, including Micron, are cutting their capital expenditures and reducing inventory, which could help companies like Samsung recover and signal the bottom of the current semiconductor downturn. Quote, that is the kind of signaling of bottom. SK Kim analysis at Dwyer Securities Capital Markets told CNBC Street Signs Asia on Friday. Kim said he expects memory prices will rebound in the first half of next year, adding that Samsung share price is also bottoming out soon. Samsung shares are down more than 28% year to day. Despite the recent slumps, Samsung has laid out roadmaps for its semiconductor business in which it aims to start manufacturing the most advanced chips in five years time. Chips are still going to be in demand. I mean, granted, maybe not as much for computers, laptops, and phones currently right now, because I am starting to remember too that Apple did report recently that they were cutting production for its one of its iPhones recently due to not of high demand, but chips will still be in demand. They will be, at least for the cars, at least for the government, for the military, 
but chips are going to be in demand and it's only going to potentially get worse for chips if they don't start figuring out how to produce more soon and to get the materials obviously as well chips will continue to be in demand because the chips chips are ruling the world pretty much in some way shape or form we can't i mean can you imagine a world where we didn't have the semiconductor chips currently right now we'd be probably stuck in like the 1950s with like our cars and our refrigerators we wouldn't have smartphones laptops or computers Heck, you won't even be listening to this podcast right now because a lot of the equipment for this podcast, there's some type of chip helping be able to record this podcast. So keep an eye out for chips. I mean, eventually, if if the economy ever recovers and this inflation stops at any point, there'll be a demand for products and services again, whether people want new electronics for iPhones or laptops or any of that stuff, there will become a demand again. The question is just when. So you got to keep an eye out for that. Well, in today's podcast, we're talking about the energy sectors now. It says here, nearly half of coal industry is still on an expansion course and reckless mining rush. Nearly half of the coal industry intends to develop new projects to exploit the world's dirtiest fossil fuel, according to German campaign group uh, Urgewald. With many companies refusing to retire assets, even extreme weather events become worse and more frequent across the globe. Yeah, there was a report recently that said you can't blame climate change for what was happening at Hurricane Ian. So CNBC, you lose a point for that. Continuing on, an update from the Urgewald about 40 partner NGOs published Tuesday found that 490 of the 1,064 companies in the global coal exit list were pursuing new coal power plants, coal mines, or new coal transport infrastructure. It means 46% of the companies surveyed are committed to expanding despite last year's UN climate summit in Glasgow ending its global agreement to accelerate efforts towards a phase down of unabated coal. The research, which represents the world's most comprehensive public database on the coal industry, said that less than 3% of those surveyed had announced timely coals, coal exit dates. Quote, pursuing new coal projects in the midst of the climate emergency is reckless, irresponsible behavior, said Hefa, director of Yurgawald. Your Investor banks and insurers should ban these coal developers from their portfolios immediately. Coal is the most carbon-intensive fossil fuel in terms of emissions and therefore the most critical target for replacement and transmission of to renewable energy sources. To be sure, the burning of fossil fuels such as coal, oil, and gas is the chief di- driver of the climate crisis. In the past few months, historic floods submerged one-third of Pakistan. Europe experienced its hottest summer in 500 years, and China recorded its most severe heat wave in climate history. At the same time, some European governments have reluctantly turned to coal to help prevent a winter supply shortage amid a dramatic fall in Russia. Gas flows, Moscow has throttled gas supplies amid a bitter energy standoff provoked by Kremlin war in Ukraine. Let's take a little history lesson. When I was in college, I took a class called Natural Disasters, okay? It was a very interesting class indeed, okay? Because we got to study geography and got to figure out what causes certain natural disasters, okay? I can tell you this much. If Pakistan is experiencing flooding, there's a high probability, from what I remember from taking that class in college, that they were in an area that is prone to potential flooding if a big enough rainstorm comes through, okay? I hate the fact that they try to blame climate change for this as happening for the coal industry, but there's certain elements that you can't blame, okay? Like for instance, a river will run its course how it wants to, because I, I remember this from taking this, this from the natural disasters class too. A river will run, it, run its course, and eventually over time as it erodes the sediment, if I'm not mistaken, 
eventually the river changes course. It can do that. There are rivers that have done that. In fact, if you see an empty riverbed, it's most likely at one point it used to connect to a major river nearby. It was the most fascinating class I ever took in college. Had nothing to do with climate change. Had everything to do with just how nature works in general. It was probably the most interesting class I ever took in my life. Okay. I hate the fact that they're trying to blame coal for this, but that's besides the point. We'll end with this before we get into the oil section. Speaking ahead of the COP27 climate summit at Sharm el-Sheikh next month, UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez warned, quote, we are in a life or death struggle for our own safety today and our survival tomorrow. Quote, this is no time for pointing fingers or twiddling thumbs in the time of, qu of quantum level compromise between developed and energy economies, he added. The NGO reported said that they're currently more than 6,500 coal plant units globally with a combined capacity of 2,067 gigawatts. It says that whether humanity is able to keep global heating from surpassing the critical temperature threshold of 1.5 degrees Celsius depends first and foremost of how quickly we phase out the enormous coal plant fleet. Okay, I'm, I'm done talking about this, except for I will say this because it talks about China later on. It says China was found to be responsible for 61% of all planned coal power capacity additions and perhaps surprisingly the top four Coal plant developers were found to be Chinese companies. China's going to keep wanting to use coal. China is going to have a demand like no other for energy soon. If China ever gets to the zero COVID policy, they're going to be just going crazy for energy, whether it's oil, coal, you name it. Okay. What I still don't get is this. Everyone keeps saying coal is a bad fuel to use. Okay, fine. It's bad to use. So why not let the market figure out how to make coal more eco-friendly, I guess, okay? I'm sure there's a way for companies, if they really wanted to, or a company, if it hasn't started up already, to be able to figure out how to suck the CO2 out from a coal plant and be able to turn into clean air. Actually, there was an article a few years ago about that on CNBC, about how China had these these plants or these machines, if I'm not mistaken, that was able to suck CO2 out of the air and they were doing something with it at the time. It's kind of mind boggling the technology that was being made in China to be able to handle the pollution within, within China. So we have the technologies. It just seems like people just don't want coal to be keep thriving, which still makes me wonder how much of these politicians have their, their own current investments in the green energy sector and how much they're wanting to bank off the profits off that. But to end today's podcast, we have to go back to OPEC because there's an opinion piece that is, at least it seems like an opinion piece. It's a commentary piece, actually. But it has some interesting thoughts to it. From Ron Insana, Insana, I mean, it's time to use all, it's time to use an all of the above energy policy to break up the OPEC plus cartel. From CNBC, Saudi Arabia's decision to ally with Russia and push through the largest supply cut by OPEC plus since 2020 means it's time for the U.S. to take available step it can boost U.S. energy production. That can mean exploring the nuclear option, a point I mean literally in terms of deploying nuclear power to assist in meeting the nation's energy needs. Energy policy is an instrument of U.S. foreign policy, given that a former ally has joined with a current adversary. I would argue that at least for the moment, all bets are off. It's time to bring Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salam and Vladimir Putin to heel and take away some of the power that OPEC and its allies have. The OPEC plus cuts were some were set at some 2 million barrels per day. The decision appears amid at bolstering oil prices, which have fallen to roughly $80 a barrel, far from 120 early in June. 
Oil has already started to climb back up to above $92 a barrel, despite the signs of economic slowing. The Biden administration's short-term environmental concerns aside should offer price support for the entire oil and gas industry. Beyond and subsidize already offered to rapidly boost production in some areas where exploration and productions have slowed. Biden, no doubt, would get uh, would get pretty much hammered by environmental groups, progressives, and even some middle and off-road Democrats for potential accelerating climate change. But short-run short needs are paramount in the U.S. would likely maintain long-term control of, our, of both our energy security and our national security. A multi-year price floor. With the imp imposition of the multi-year price floor, the U.S. could support domestic crude prices at least, say, $65 a barrel. That's high enough to encourage existing fracking efforts while also encouraging additional production. Yet it's low enough to help put the pull the rug from under a former ally that has shown its allegiance to Moscow. We'll do this for the manner of commodity producers, by the way. Further, a more rapid addition of U.S. supplies of oil and natural gas would pressure global energy prices greatly and hurt the bottom line of Saudi Arabia and Russia, who are trying to insure $100 a barrel to prop up their budgets and for Putin to, final, to finance the ongoing war in Ukraine. A flood of U.S. oil could drive prices back into the 20s, even as U.S. companies are guaranteed to earn more. In the 1980s, when the Saudis were the world's swing producer of oil, they set the global prices by raising and lowering productions to send prices up and down depending on prevailing circumstances. The U.S. is poised to be the number one producer next year when daily production reaches the old record of 12.3 million barrels per day from the current 11.8 million. The U.S. has been the world's largest producer of natural gas since 2017. In addition, this is what I find interesting. In addition, the U.S. should expedite the built out of pipelines, transmission lines and LNG terminals so that the U.S. can more effectively and profitably export surplus oil and natural gas to an energy starved world. Adding a little fuel to the fire could help Europe avoid future disruption of supplies as long as sanctions remain in place against a would-be Peter the Great. Okay. I agree with this guy in this article. And honestly, we need to keep drilling, keep pumping, making pipelines, making it so that we're pumping so much oil into the world economy that it becomes less per barrel. Okay. What would become interesting too is if this plan was actually implemented, this would probably end Russia's war effort with Ukraine across the board. Okay. Think about it. 43% of Russia's exports right now are oil and gas. Right now, China and Russia, or China, well, China and Russia, China is, is buying Russian oil. I believe too, Saudi Arabia is buying Russian oil too. If I've, I believe I've spoken about this in past podcasts. It's hard to remember all the details of every podcast we've talked about, but I do remember China is though. If we were to pump so much oil into the markets, it means Russia's economy, it wouldn't be, it, people would stop buying Russian oil. You have to become the cheaper oil now. That's the solution to end the war with Ukraine. You have to start pumping so much oil into the world economy that it's not profitable for Russia to keep fighting with Ukraine. That's how you break Russia. All the sanctions you can put on them does nothing if all these countries are going to keep buying oil. I mean, even India, I believe, is buying cheap oil from Russia, but they have their reasons. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. We need to start considering these ideas. I mean, even, which I think is ridiculous in this article too, he's saying here, he says, the U.S. should also strike a deal with Iran and Venezuela to allow oil to flow from those pariah states. At the end of the day, this may be naive, but what's the difference between doing business with Saudi Arabia and Russia compared to doing business with Venezuela and Iran? 
long ago we learned that the en enemy of my enemy is my friend. No, this is the one thing I don't agree with him. Stop relying on OPEC plus. We need to start drilling oil. We need to pump so much oil into the world economy right now. It would literally end the war with Russia and Ukraine because then Russia couldn't finance their war. Okay. That's how you end it. President Joe Biden, you probably never listen to this podcast, but that's how you would end it. All the sanctions you put will do nothing. You need to end Putin's push for oil because Putin's probably in talks with OPEC plus with being able to cut supplies. If you put too much oil into the market though, it would cause the price per barrel to drop and it would probably end Russia's war too. But what do I know? That's not how politics works half of the time, but hey, I think it would work. So I'll leave it there. With that being said, fellow podcast listeners, thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. I have an excitement announcement to tell you all. Yesterday we hit our 100th episode of our podcast and it totally slipped my mind at the time. So we've made it to 100 episodes in this podcast of reporting the news of what's happening on Wall Street. I ask now that you share with friends or family and let them know that we're continuing to grow this podcast and be able to keep reporting the news as much as possible to let you all know what's happening on Wall Street since Wall Street is not covering everything all the time. And with your friends and family sharing, please like and subscribe to this podcast as every like and subscription can help grow this podcast. Thank you for my fellow supporters who have been with me on this journey so far, reaching 100 episodes. Never thought I'd hit it. I thought it would only be maybe a few episodes I would do before I'd face burnout, but I've actually enjoyed being able to record these podcasts. So thank you to my fellow listeners and long-term fans who have been listening as you've helped me grow on this journey. Thank you for continuing your, your, for your continual support on this podcast. With that being said, fellow podcast listeners, thank you so much for listening to this podcast today. Thank you and goodbye.